Hello, knowledge seekers. In this episode of 20-Minute Books, we delve into the heart of racial discourse with Emmanuel Acho's timely book, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man, a courageous exploration that aims to bridge the racial divide by inviting readers to confront the sobering realities of race and racism in America. Acho encourages an honest and open dialogue, asserting that appreciating the struggles black individuals face today requires a deep understanding of U.S. history. Throughout the book, Acho answers vital questions and dismantles persistent myths with clarity and empathy, making complex issues accessible to all. His personal stories and insights, derived from both his Nigerian-American upbringing in Dallas and his time as an NFL player for the Cleveland Browns and the Philadelphia Eagles, lend a unique and authentic perspective to the conversation. Since his retirement from professional football in 2016, Acho has not only been a notable sports analyst for ESPN and Fox Sports, but also the mind behind the impactful video series of the same name launched in 2020, marking his entry into the cultural conversation. This book is essential reading for white individuals seeking a deeper understanding of racism, engaged citizens who aspire to contribute positively to the fight against racial injustice, and anyone interested in the intricacies of American history. Join us as we confront the uncomfortable with the goal of sparking change that echoes beyond the pages. Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man An Introduction to Race and Race-Related Issues in America Introduction Exploring the Tough Questions Dive into a Candid Discussion on Racism Racism, a deeply rooted issue in American society, often feels like a vast and intricate maze that's difficult to navigate. It's a subject shrouded in awkwardness and sensitivity, leaving many of us hesitating on the threshold, unsure of how to venture into discussion. But here's the candid truth. Progress is impossible without conversation. To bridge the racial divide, we must step into the discomfort and engage in open, earnest dialogue about the tough issues. This narrative seeks to provide a beacon through that difficulty, guiding listeners who are ready to confront race and race-related problems in the United States, especially those who find themselves at a loss for where to begin these crucial exchanges. As we delve into the narrative, we'll touch on the fundamental questions that shape our understanding of racism. We'll trace the historical threads that explain how we've arrived at our current juncture, grappling with a legacy of discrimination and injustice. Throughout our journey, we'll explore key learnings. Navigating the terminology. Black versus African American. What's the preferable choice? Debunking misconceptions the myth of so-called reverse racism and why it doesn't hold water, language matters, why the term thug is loaded with meaning and should not be part of your vocabulary. These are just a few of the signposts we'll encounter as we navigate the complex landscape of race relations in America. Prepare to reflect, learn, and most importantly, engage with the uncomfortable, because it's through these conversations that we pave the way for change. Part 1 the power of language, how our choices shape conversations about race. Undoubtedly, the phrase Black Lives Matter 
resonates as more than a call to action. It encapsulates generations of struggle, anguish, and a plea for recognition of humanity. This three-word statement has reverberated around the globe, provoking introspection and sparking dialogues on the current state of racial affairs. It begs the primary question, why must we be reminded to value the lives of black individuals? If your heart beats faster at the thought of grappling with such queries, be comforted. With the right words, no question is forbidden, as long as we approach our curiosity with sensitivity and awareness. The essence of this narrative boils down to one premise. To engage in meaningful discourse on race, the vocabulary we employ is paramount. Let's start with a deceptively simple yet substantial conundrum. When addressing racial identity, should one use Black or African American? The historical background of these terms is laden with shifts in societal attitudes. Post-American Civil War, the term colored, found favor as it acknowledged the spectrum of mixed descent. Fast forward to mid-20th century, Negro became the norm but was later abandoned, partly due to its roots in the vocabulary of white oppressors. The late 1960s saw the rise of black, in lowercase, deemed as a symbol of pride and power. Decades later, Jesse Jackson, a stalwart civil rights champion, threw his weight behind African American celebrating the rich tapestry of cultural roots. Yet the debate endures with proponents on both sides. The author, though, leans towards black in lowercase, embracing its inclusivity. Venturing into more treacherous linguistic territory, the notorious N-word surfaces alongside its perennial conundrum. Why is this term off-limits to white individuals? Once again, history offers guidance. With his origin as a slur in 1775 and its continued usage until the civil rights movement, the N-word is fraught with an oppressive legacy. While some black communities have reclaimed the term within their own circles, and it punctuates the bars of hip-hop verses, the word is fraught with implications when it slips from the lips of a white person. The utterance conjures an entire history of systemic racism, insinuating that black individuals are subordinate or even property. Considering the magnitude of this history, the proposition is simple. Can white people not bear the small burden of excluding this word from their vocabulary? It's a minor concession compared to the gravity of pain that the word represents. Part 2. The Unseen Edges of Privilege. How Implicit Bias Affects Black Lives. Imagine a tech breakthrough setting the world abuzz, only to unveil a glaring prejudiced oversight, Google Photos, in 2015, did just that. Its promise to intuitively recognize individuals in images stumbled upon a disturbing blind spot. Black users were misidentified as gorillas. What went wrong was not just a technical glitch, but a reflection of implicit bias, an unconscious form of discrimination pervading even our most neutral-seeming technologies. Implicit bias is one side of a coin. The other is privilege often invisible to those who have it. Together, they create an environment where black individuals unintentionally find themselves pushed to the margins. The key insight to grasp, white people often marginalize black people without even realizing it. Some resist acknowledging the existence of white privilege by pointing to the historical victories of the 60s or 
the existence of poverty among white populations. Yet, that overlooks the core of what privilege encompasses. Picture a race where certain runners are given a head start, not a metaphorical one, but actual, measurable meters. Even if the others are eventually allowed the same running space, the initial disparity compromises fairness. White privilege serves as that initial leg up in life's race. While it doesn't spell guaranteed success for every white individual, it does mean their hurdles won't include obstacles erected solely because of their skin color. So ingrained is this privilege that it often goes unnoticed by its beneficiaries. Take a moment and consider, when boarding an elevator, is your presence enough to unsettle others? Do you recalibrate your demeanor at the sight of law enforcement? If these questions seem alien, that's white privilege for you. These are constant considerations for black individuals. It's not just interpersonal scenarios where privilege asserts itself. It's in the cultural sphere as well. Does the integration of black culture into white mainstream think fashion influences a la Kim Kardashian or musical crossover in the world of rap and jazz? constitute harmless admiration, or is there something more insidious at play? The answer is not quite as flattering. Such assimilation falls under the umbrella of cultural appropriation, where the dominant culture, white culture in America, doesn't ask for consent. It takes often erasing the origins and significance of these cultural elements in the process. This isn't to say white people can't appreciate black culture, but rather that the appreciation should respect boundaries, recognizing and honoring the roots of that culture, rather than claiming it as their own. It's a delicate dance, recognizing where admiration ends and appropriation begins, but it's a necessary step towards acknowledging the full scope of societal privilege and bias. Part 3. Peering Through the Lens of Society, Unveiling the Structures of Systemic Racism The civil rights advances of the 1960s may have reshaped America's legal landscape, but a sobering truth lingers. Societal structures still harbor the mechanics of racial prejudice. Consider this staggering statistic. White families hold an average wealth that surpasses black families by tenfold. This disparity isn't the fruit of mere chance. Rather, it's a direct consequence of enduring white privilege. Understanding white privilege means recognizing a network of societal benefits that white individuals often take for granted, such as increased safety in the presence of law enforcement officers. Yet, it's far more than individual liberties. White privilege percolates through the structural bedrock of society, embodying what we recognize as systemic racism. The core take-home point. Racism isn't solely an individual failing, it's a societal one. To illustrate, let's examine the domain of housing. During the 1930s, the Federal Housing Administration rated various ethnic groups by their perceived suitability for home loans, ranking white Europeans at the pinnacle, while demoting Mexican and black individuals to the lowest rungs. This rating had a tangible impact, steering city growth and limiting mortgage access for those deemed less desirable. Enter the term redlining a visual and practical manifestation of financial discrimination, where certain areas were encircled in red on maps, signifying a minimization of financial opportunity. Even with the 1968 Fair Housing Act declaring redlining illegal, such practices covertly persisted, 
resulting in residential patterns still markedly divided by racial lines. Today, the home ownership rate among black households trails behind that of white households, 43% to 72%, presenting a formidable obstacle in wealth accumulation for black families. The repercussions extend to education. Schools in impoverished neighborhoods often grapple with insufficient funding due, in part, to a scarcity of local businesses and their contributions to tax revenues. Students in these communities, many of whom are black, are doubly disadvantaged, not only by economic challenges, but also by attending underfunded schools. To counter such inequities, initiatives like affirmative action strive to equalize opportunities for employment and education. Yet some criticize such efforts as reverse racism. This perspective overlooks a vital distinction. Racism wields its malign influence when a dominant group suppresses a subordinate one. Given America's power dynamics, where the white majority maintains a position of power, the concept of reverse racism is fundamentally flawed. It lacks the societal clout to enact widespread systemic oppression. Confronting the fact that society itself can be racist, we must challenge the structures that allow such disparities to continue silently. Understanding this systemic nature is the first step toward dismantling barriers and forging a path toward equity. Part 4. Systemic Inequality. How Power Skews America's Electoral and Judicial Systems. Meet Crystal Mason, a black woman and mother from Fort Worth, Texas, urged by her mother to participate in the 2016 election. Crystal, however, was previously incarcerated, which unbeknownst to her, stripped away her Texan voting rights. After submitting a provisional ballot, she was subsequently convicted of voter fraud and sentenced to five years in prison. In striking contrast, that same year, a Texas judge named Russ Casey was caught falsifying signatures to appear on a ballot. His crime, arguably graver, resulted in a mere five years of probation. This stark disparity in consequences reveals a profound message. The American electoral and justice systems are rigged to favor those already wielding power. What the author brings into focus here is the fix, a metaphor for how systemic racism endures. Essentially, those perched atop the societal hierarchy are actively ensuring that transformative change remains out of reach for those who challenge the status quo. Voter disenfranchisement is one of the most potent tools in maintaining this grip on power. The legacy of such practices is as ancient as the Constitution itself, with dehumanizing clauses like regarding enslaved individuals as merely three-fifths of a human for representative purposes, without granting them any say in governance. Fast forward, and following the abolition of slavery, constitutional amendments promised voting rights to black individuals. Yet, states deployed a barrage of roadblocks, from poll taxes and literacy tests to property requirements, effectively stifling the newly granted rights. Modern voter suppression carries on the tradition. Strict voter ID laws, for instance, disproportionately impact black citizens, who are statistically less likely to possess identification. Gerrymandering, the strategic manipulation of voting districts, continuously serves to dilute black political influence, and the judicial hammer falls heavily, as evidenced by Crystal Mason's harsh sentencing 
solidifying the chilling effect on minority voters. The fix persists, unabating. These electoral and judicial biases are not mere anachronisms. They are systemic features, deliberately constructed to consolidate power. By recognizing the fix for what it is, we can begin to unravel the mechanisms of power and advocate for a truly equitable system, where justice and representation reflect the makeup and will of all people. Part 5. Breaking Down Harmful Narratives The Impact of Language on Perceptions of Black Crime Let's explore the powerful yet insidious impact of words on our perceptions of crime within the black community. In 1995, criminologist John DeLulio coined the term super predator, painting a stark image of cold, unprovoked violence. While DeLulio refrained from explicitly stating a racial component, his narrative and the subsequent policy implications disproportionately affected urban black neighborhoods hinting at an unwarranted natural predisposition to criminality. This idea echoed in policies such as President Clinton's crime bill, fortifying an era of mass incarceration that disproportionately targets the black population. The subject of violence is as critical as ever, and our language around it is powerful enough to exacerbate or alleviate societal tensions. The critical takeaway the language used to discuss black crime often reinforces harmful stereotypes. Consider the term thug, widely deployed as a veiled replacement for the N-word, embedding racist preconceptions beneath a thin mask of neutrality. Or contemplate the phrase black-on-black crime, a term that suggests an inherent criminal tendency tied to race. Yet, criminologists recognize that it is economic disparities not racial characteristics that are more predictive of crime rates. Systemic barriers have disproportionately relegated black communities to poverty, establishing the true roots of the higher crime rates observed within such neighborhoods. Therefore, the notion of black-on-black crime as a distinct and exceptional category is a myth, one that distracts from the systemic factors at play. This misleading narrative stands shoulder-to-shoulder with the trope of the angry black man a stereotype painting black men as inherently volatile and threatening, a portrayal both incorrect and damaging. Anger is a universal emotion, not the exclusive province of any particular race. It's essential to recognize the legitimacy of black individuals' feelings, allowing them space to express their anger without attributing ulterior motives due to racial bias. Finally, placing this conversation within a broader historical context, It is impossible to ignore the justifiable anger stoked by centuries of systemic oppression faced by black people in America. Language is not just a method of communication. It's a vehicle that can either perpetuate stereotypes or challenge them, shaping our understanding and relationships with each other. Recognizing this power, we must choose our words thoughtfully, striving to break the cycle of harmful narratives and stereotypes. Part 6 the long shadow of history on black families. The familial structure of black households in America often sharply contrasts with the more frequently encountered two-parent white homes, a reality that has placed substantial hurdles in the path of black family units for generations. The prevalence of single-parent homes, higher dropout rates, and increased interactions with the criminal justice system 
among black families are not mere coincidences, but are instead deeply entwined with historical legacies. Understanding this context is key. Black families have faced immense challenges over centuries that continue to reverberate today. Take, for instance, the poignant story of Keka Pugh in 1841, writing a letter to purchase his enslaved grandson, a desperate bid to preserve what semblance of family he could. This heart-wrenching situation offers an acute glimpse into the relentless forces that have historically torn apart black families. Even after the abolition of slavery, when liberated black individuals were promised lands and a mule for self-sustenance, a promise largely unkept, they were thrust into a relentless struggle for survival. Substandard education, limited economic prospects, and entrenched poverty have been but a few of the many adversaries black families have grappled with. The lasting effects of slavery wedged deeply into the structure of black families, undermining their unity through systemic dissociation rather than inherent familial weakness. The author, with roots in Nigeria, can attest to the strength of familial bonds in black cultures, debunking the myth that the observed struggles within black American families are self-originating. Approaching the topic of interracial families, we find a nuanced terrain. Love transcends boundaries, and while the union between individuals of different races is a celebration of shared humanity, it also requires an acute awareness of societal context. White partners in an interracial couple should neither be blind to their black partner's race nor fetishize them. Both extremes are dismissive of the complex racial landscape they navigate together. Significantly, until the landmark 1967 Supreme Court decision to strike down anti-miscegenation laws, racial intermarriage faced formal prohibition, a stark reminder of the not-so-distant oppressive past. The fabric of black family life is woven with threads of profound struggle against a backdrop of historical and systemic oppression. Recognizing the heavy toll extracted by these enduring challenges is crucial to comprehending the contemporary reality of black family dynamics and the social constructions that shape them. Part 7. The Imperative of Standing Against Racial Injustice Reflecting on the raw power of protest, the author is reminded of a poignant childhood experience, witnessing his mother's visceral grief upon learning of her sister's death her anguish manifested physiologically, her agony transcending into a physical reckoning. When crowds surge onto the streets, spurred into action by the death of George Floyd and countless others, the upheaval echoes a similar emotional catalyst. Indeed, while violence in such contexts fails to find justification, the root sentiment, anger at systemic wrongs, is valid and compelling. Here's the heart of the matter. Protesting systemic racism is a critical and necessary act. Clarifying terminology is essential. Protest, riot, and rebellion all carry different weights and implications. A protest inspired by Thoreau's legacy of civil disobedience is when personal moral compasses collide with legal norms, prompting dissenting action. It's a methodical challenge to authority, exercised by figures like Gandhi through non-violent hunger strikes against the British Raj. A riot, on the other hand, is a chaotic disruption, often violent, 
traditionally with white mobs unleashing brutality upon black individuals. History grimly recalls such riots in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898, and Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921, where racial animosity incited slaughter and uproar. However, what's often termed race riots in the 1960s might be more suitably defined as rebellions. The distinction? A rebellion is a conscious retaliation against oppression, a calculated uprising against the very essence of injustice. The necessity of protest in America's democratic landscape cannot be overstated, a sentiment nobly encapsulated by the late and revered civil rights champion John Lewis. Never, ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble, necessary trouble. Thus, Standing against discrimination and rallying for justice is not just an option, but a mandate, a fundamental component in the pursuit of liberty and equality. Shifting into activism, embracing the discord, and challenging the systemic fabric that sustains racial injustice is crucial. It is not about endorsing violence, but about understanding the gravitas of the impulse to resist, to speak out, and to claim the space for change. It's about acknowledging the importance of taking a stand, of being part of a collective voice that, through its clamor, spells the embodiment of progress and hope. Part 8. Joining Forces to Dismantle Racism Picture a football huddle as the author once experienced during his time in the NFL. The players, gathering in unity, quietly mapping out their next move. It's a critical convergence, but the true test unfolds in the execution of the play. Similarly, the fight against racism demands that each of us understands our part and then acts decisively. The pivotal insight to understand. Eradicating racism requires a collective effort. For those wondering how they can actively contribute to this cause, the concept of allyship is central. An ally is someone willing to stand shoulder to shoulder with the oppressed, accepting the risk of losing personal privilege in the process. Allyship is not new. History reminds us of white abolitionists from as far back as the 1820s who stood up to slavery, and individuals like Juliet Hampton Morgan, whose vocal opposition to segregation in Alabama came at a personal cost, leading to her ultimate tragic end. True allyship demands resilience and is distinctly different from the misguided white savior complex a narrative too often glorified in popular culture, where the white protagonist is portrayed as the sole beacon of hope for black individuals. Taking action against racism can start with simple yet powerful steps. Begin by engaging in the tough conversations, expanding your social circles, participating in protests, and scrutinizing the political policies that perpetuate racial injustices. The prospect of a world without racism may seem elusive, But history teaches us that seemingly unconquerable institutions like slavery can and do crumble. Not so long ago, the idea of a black person as president of the United States was unfathomable. Yes, racism's roots are deeply entrenched, spanning over four centuries. Its eradication won't be achieved overnight. But with persistent collective effort, a day when racism is but a blemish in history books is conceivable a vision worth striving for, a goal that calls every one of us to action, each contribution, each voice raised, each heart and mind opened, moves us closer to the kind of world we aspire to. It's a path to walk together, 
a journey laden with responsibility and a destination of hope and equity for future generations. Final summary. Venturing into conversations about race is often fraught with difficulty and discomfort, especially for those who have not endured the sting of discrimination. Yet, these discussions are imperative for unraveling the complex tapestry of racial dynamics in America, giving insight into the persistent challenges faced by black communities. This narrative reminds us that by bravely engaging with the unsettling questions and delving into the painful historical context of race relations in America, we gain clarity on contemporary issues of racial injustice. Education is the cornerstone, a beacon illuminating the path ahead as we take to heart the shared experiences and histories. We are not just passive onlookers, but active participants in shaping a more equitable future. Each one of us holds the potential to extend a hand in allyship, to uplift and amplify voices that have been marginalized, and to stand firmly against the lingering shadows of racism. Taking these insights forward, we can all contribute to the monumental task of tearing down the barriers of racial inequality, creating a society where open dialogue paves the way for understanding and transformative change. Thank you for joining me today on this journey of learning and discovery as we explored the insights of another thought-provoking book in our growing library of knowledge. If you've enjoyed our time together, please take a moment to follow our podcast, give us a five-star rating, and share 20-minute books with other knowledge seekers. Your support truly means a lot. Don't forget to join me again in the next episode, where we will delve into another enriching book. Until then, happy reading and happy listening.